I feel that nonviolence is really the only way because violence is just so self-defeating. A riot ends up creating many more problems for the Negro community and it's solved. You can, through violence, burn down a building, but you can't establish justice. You can murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder through violence. You can murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. And what we are trying to get rid of is hate. Can we honestly say that it doesn't affect our security and the fight for peace when Negroes are denied their full constitutional rights? We must come to see that the end we seek is a society at peace with itself. And that will be a day not of the white man, not of the black man. That will be the day of man as man. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. In what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Let freedom ring and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. morning storyline it's so good to be able to share with you this morning and such an honor for me to do this so thank you so much for joining us tomorrow january 18th is martin luther king day and if you've never read his works i would highly recommend them to you his wisdom resonates to this very day at the end of one of his most powerful sermons martin luther king shifts gears and tone and he goes from addressing the people like in front of him, you know, the people that were on his side, to an audience that's much bigger and wider, to those who were opposed to him, who frankly hated him. So he's addressing people like the KKK and all the many forces that were arrayed against him at the time. And this is what he said. I do not hate you. I love you. And I would rather die than hate you. Can you imagine? I mean, really, what would have to be true about us to be able to say that and mean it to people who would rather see us and our families dead than living freely in their midst? Last week, we talked about the unbelievably high cost of love. 
playing with this idea from Seinfeld's Festivus for the rest of us, we ended with this question, how can we go from the airing of grievances to feats of strength? And left off with this challenge that the greatest feat of strength is to love those who don't share our grievances, those who have grievances with us. And beyond that, to love those with whom we have a grievance. This was Martin Luther King's whole life. We are living in a difficult time, in such a divisive time. There is more than a little bit of hate going around, maybe you've noticed, and it's disturbing, it's unsettling, and it's scary. Martin Luther King Day has arrived, I think, at the perfect moment for us to consider how he lived like he did. With that kind of passion and commitment, and even in the face of such vitriol and unjust hatred, how he found the desire and the ability to love his enemies. We know, of course, that he was a preacher, a man of faith. And certainly Jesus' command to love your enemies was something that he knew well. But knowing the command and actually like being willing and able to keep it, two very different things. To begin to understand how Martin Luther King lived and loved like this, it will be helpful for us to consider the subtle but I think very important difference between living with faith versus living by faith. There are two things that I'd like to explore about that this morning. The first is what is the difference between living with faith versus living by faith? And the second is how does living by faith inspire and empower us to love even our enemies. So living with faith is something we all do, actually. Frankly, it's impossible to not have faith. We all have some idea, plan, thing, way, or hope that we possess, that we are living with, trusting if we can get it, achieve it, arrange it, attain it, that we will get some sought-after goal or reward. So I teach high school, and believe me, no one hears tales of great faith more than me. A couple of years ago, a young man told me, you know, Mr. Gathright, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go to U of M, and I'm just going to play basketball there. And I was thinking, you may want to pick up your 18% uh, three-point shooting percentage a little bit. But hey, I kept that to myself. And I did ask him, what if that doesn't work out? you know, kind of seeing if he had a plan B. And without hesitation and with all kinds of faith, he said, I think Duke's my backup. <laughs> Living with faith is normal, natural, and necessary. Students live with faith that studying will get good grades. Investors live with faith that compound interest will make them money. Sweethearts live with faith that romance will make them happy. Living by faith is different in a couple ways. The first is living with faith, we often focus on like our faith, like how strong it is, how much we believe, you know, and, and but living by faith, it's not so much about our faith or how much faith we possess. Living by faith is about what possesses us. I've told this story before about the man being chased by a bear through the woods. And as they, he comes through this clearing, he recognizes he's being chased towards this cliff. And as he approaches the cliff, he sees, thankfully, there's a tree growing up from the canyon below. And, and there's branches there. 
And it's clear to him that as he's running, that he's going to have to jump. He's going to have to take a leap of faith, if you will, to survive. And in that moment, the issue for him isn't how strong his faith is. His focus isn't on his faith at all. His focus is entirely on the strength of the branch. Like, which one can hold me? If the branch he chooses is weak, it doesn't matter how much faith he has in it. All that matters is how strong the branch is. If the branch he chooses is strong, even the slightest, even a little bit, a tiny bit of faith, and he survives. Living with faith in this or that plan is normal, natural, and necessary. But what Jesus is saying with his invitation to live by faith is God's grace is the only branch that can hold us. It's the difference between saying, I'm living with faith that someday I'll own my own business. And I'm living by, as in because of, the heart transplant I received. Living with faith can only do so much. It can only take us so far. I find 
say that out of obligation I really spent hours on my speech I thank my biggest inspirations And the good folks back in Hollywood But it didn't fix me It didn't fix me like I thought it would It didn't fix me It didn't fix me I finally found someone who loves me And to her I will be true sees the ways in which I'm ugly Loves me for those reasons too Even though I'm feeling stronger Than I ever thought I could It still didn't fix me It didn't fix me It didn't fix me like I Living with faith in this, that, or the other thing is something we all do. It's normal, it's natural, it's necessary. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. It just doesn't fix us. It doesn't heal us or make us whole. And what I'm really trying to get at is we can be a person of faith in God and still only living with that faith. You know, as if it's one of many branches on the tree that we could cling to. I, I know I struggle with this. I live my day-to-day -day life with faith in all kinds of things. My health, my retirement plan, my family's well-being, Jesus. In other words, often he's just one of the many branches on my tree. And the problem is when life is a bear, it has a way of exposing the branches that we are living with faith in and how and how clumsy how flimsy they can be look martin luther king wasn't relying on counting on his investments his achievements his fame his accolades even his family's love and certainly not his own health or future when he told his enemies that he loved them when he refused to answer their hate with his own hate Living by faith in God's grace produced in him an incredible commitment and courage and love, even for his enemies. Which brings us to our second question. How does living by faith in God's grace inspire and, in, and equip and 
empower and equip us to love even our enemies. There's a story in the Bible that gets at this really well. It's an encounter that Jesus has in the town of Jericho with a man named Zacchaeus. Now in Jesus' time, Jericho and all of Israel had been conquered by the Roman Empire. Now the Romans had a very specific MO, like this playbook that they ran over and over. It was kind of their way of conquering. And unlike some powerful nations in ancient history that would invade, plunder, and then move on to who's next, the Romans had a system to squeeze every drop of wealth out of a country. And here's essentially what they would do. They would leave behind enough troops, just enough troops after an invasion to occupy the country, control it, and then continue to exploit it. They used several strategies to accomplish this. I mean, think about it. Unlike the invasion, when their entire army is there, after the invasion is over, after the conquering is over, during the occupation, the Romans were really outnumbered. So how did they do it? Well, the first thing that they did is they allowed the conquered people to keep their own religion. They found that if they gave special treatment to the religious elite, they would just roll over, enjoy their status in, in this new society, and, and help the Romans placate the masses. But the point of all that was to achieve their real goal, which was financial. So the second strategy was to recruit tax collectors from the conquered population. So the Romans, see the Romans found that it was critical for their entire system of overthrow, occupy, and exploit. For that to work, they had to have tax collectors from the population because these people knew the people. They knew their neighbors. They knew who had money, who made the money, and who could pay how much. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were not just corrupt officials. They were traitors. Even worse than that, they were actually collaborators. They used their intimate knowledge of their own people, not only to enrich themselves, but to empower this ongoing occupation. Without the tax collectors, the Roman system of oppression and exploitation would just collapse. Tax collectors were like the linchpin in this cycle of suffering. So as you might imagine, they were hated with this white-hot passion by the Jews. That is what Zacchaeus did. He was Jericho's chief tax collector, like the tax collector in charge of all the other tax collectors. He was an extorting traitor, a treasonous cheat, a collaborator willing to burn down his own country so long as he could be on top of the ashes. Picture your least favorite person right now. Okay, you got them? How do you feel about that person? You're about halfway to how the Jews felt about Zacchaeus. So here's what happened. Jesus is walking through Jericho. There's this huge crowd, and Zacchaeus, who the Bible says is really short, climbs a tree so that he can get a look. He can get a glimpse at Jesus. And Jesus gets under this tree and stops, and this is what the Bible says. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now this is not just shocking. What Jesus is doing here is like horrifically offensive. You have to try and imagine the person you admire most 
look up to and respect going out of his or her way to pal around with the absolutely most despicable person that you can think of. Now let that sink in for a second. Your hero, buddy-buddy, with the person you revile most. This is Jesus loving his enemy. It's important for us to note that later, after Jesus pursues and loves Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus does pledge to change his ways. He makes amends with those that he has wronged. But Jesus didn't invite himself into Zacchaeus' life after that. He did it before. Now this story is in stark contrast to another that happens just a few chapters before where a man approaches Jesus that's described as a rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler ends up walking away from Jesus because even though he clearly lived with faith, he, he lived with a real faith in God. He even says, look, I've kept all the rules. But when Jesus calls him to live by faith in God, as in live this out, like let go of your other branches and live by faith in God's grace, it's just a leap that he won't make. Which really, I think, begs this question, what changed Zacchaeus? And I think it was that Zacchaeus saw Jesus living by grace. It was not just Jesus loving Zacchaeus because he was good. Jesus' love for him came before he was good. And Zacchaeus saw the risk that Jesus took, the price that he paid by choosing to love him. Jesus was already being accused of being a friend of sinners. His love for Zacchaeus alienates him from the respectable people even more. Even Jesus' own followers were outraged by his love for Zacchaeus. Martin Luther King, by the way, took enormous flack for talking about loving racists, for refusing to answer hate with hate, for insisting on non-violence. But I think what he understood is something that we often miss. Jesus didn't come to save the best of us. He came to save the rest of us. And as we really think about how our hopes and dreams, all the things that we live with faith in, and how often those things can ignore or leave behind other people, or maybe even at times exploit other people along the way, maybe it's not so hard for us to imagine, maybe I'm not one of the best of us. Maybe we can see ourselves up in that tree wanted to catch a glimpse of God as he passes by, but clinging to our branch nonetheless. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was condoning Zacchaeus' behavior or even overlooking it, any more than Martin Luther King did that of racists and bigots. I'm just sharing the story of two men that we know changed the world and something they shared in common, a love for their enemies grounded in living their life by faith in the grace of God. There is a difference between living with faith and living by faith. And that difference makes all the difference. Because it means grace isn't just 
one branch of many on our tree. Living by faith is a heart transplant that creates a commitment. It calls for a sacrifice and nurtures a love that changes us and the world. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Less than 24 hours after Martin Luther King gave this sermon, he ended up, just like he said, dying rather than hating the people who killed him. How did he do it? How did he love his enemies? It was by living by faith in the one who died for him. When he was God's enemy. You know, one has to wonder what might have happened if the people of Zacchaeus' city would have loved him like that. Could that kind of love have changed his story? Could it have changed theirs? Is it possible when Jesus loved Zacchaeus, he wasn't doing what only he could do, but showing us what we all can do only by faith in his grace? Maybe that's the mountaintop Martin Luther King is talking about. When we fail to love our enemies, we're actually empowering a foreign force, an occupying army to control us and exploit us. Martin Luther King understood this. So as we celebrate his life and legacy tomorrow, especially in the midst of all that we are going through, I think it's important that we not only remember who he was and what he did, but how he did it. What made him a transformational figure in our history? The way he saved us from self-destruction was living by faith in the God of all grace. That is what inspired him and equipped him to love his enemies. You know, he ended the sermon we quoted at the beginning like this. I do not hate you. I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, the worst of men will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. May we all 
be so foolish. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. Thank you so much for the examples of great faith and people who live by faith in your grace. Specifically, this weekend and tomorrow, we thank Martin Luther King. We thank you for his incredible and inspiring example of what it looks like to live by faith and to love your enemies. He certainly changed our nation um, through that, through your incredible love. God, I pray that you would help us to see all the branches on our tree, the things that we live with faith in that maybe get in our way of clinging to you. Help us to see that more clearly this week. Help us to share your love and grace with everyone we come in contact with. God, I pray that as we log off this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folks. Hope to see you soon.